Hello, and welcome to Privacy Learn with myself, James Shaw and Michael McLaughlin. On this episode, we are joined by Lee Spencer. Lee was a truly remarkable guest, even though he won't admit it himself. He's very modest and humble. Lee is a former Royal Marine with over 24 years service with tours to Afghanistan, Iraq and Northern Ireland. In 2014, Lee lost his right leg after being hit by an engine block as he himself was helping a motorist who had crashed on the UK motorway. Despite losing his leg, Lee was able to instruct bystanders on how to tie a tourniquet and help paramedics save his life. Following this, Lee has become a multiple world record holder and is known as the Rome Marine, following rows across the Atlantic. This is a really incredible chat and uh, as always, hope you enjoy it. But please do check www.leespencer.co.uk for further information and also check out his Just Giving page www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash 65 Degrees Heroes of Telemark. There are links on the, on the notes of this. But as I say, please enjoy and um, as always, any comments, feedback is much appreciated. Well, good afternoon. Lee, thank you very, very much for coming on. It's uh, super excited to have you on. It's such a privilege. Um, to be honest, I don't really know where to start. So, uh, so Lee, you uh, are Royal Marine for over 24 years. Uh, you had tours to Afghanistan, Iraq and Northern Ireland. In 2014, you were involved in a near-death but life-changing road accident um, after you'd stopped to help at an accident site yourself and help others. And since then, you've become a multiple world record holder and are known as uh, the Rowing Marine, following successfully rowing the Atlantic, both individually and as part of a team of injured veterans. Um, I'm not even going to mention zero gravity yet or the, um, the, the trial from Great Britain. <laughs> so it's just, uh, how, how did it all start? Where do you go? What, yeah, how do you get there? What's your journey been? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Where, where do you want to start? Um, joining the Marines uh, was always a dream for me and um i physically i was always been bang average i wasn't um particularly gifted at anything actually at school and i found school uh, quite difficult um and i found uh, when i joined the marines that i my superpower if i've got one is not giving in and um, actually, for you just briefly mentioned there the triathlon of Great Britain, I was uh, I got tested by a friend of mine, um, got me VO2 max uh, tested, and it is bang average. So um, <laughs> it's it, how it all came about is is completely, you know, the, the, the two rows. It's really just when my life changed, it's just saying yes to things. Mm. But you say earlier about um, saying yes. But did you? Was that always there as a as a child? Were you always saying yes to stuff, or was it as you grew older? Your you suddenly took that approach. No, I, I suppose um, when I was a child, I was a dreamer. I had a, quite a difficult childhood, and um, dreaming was like escaping. Uh, which something was off the, the awful reality of my existence. Um, I uh, I suppose I should really explain. I had uh, my dad was a violent alcoholic, um, and he beat both my mum and me. And um, my mum left him when I was seven, and he stopped being the violent alcoholic. But he, he was carried on um, alcohol uh, ruled his life. Uh, unfortunately, but that, as a kid growing up, um, I used to dream a lot, and I'd sit there and and, and dream away. And as, as I mentioned, I was I wasn't gifted at anything. I wasn't academic. I wasn't uh, sporty. Um, I wasn't uh, well. I, I enjoyed sports, but I wasn't good enough to rep- even represent the school at any level. At anything. Um, and I actually struggled a lot as a kid because I think when you when you are a kid, you're kind of looking for that where you fit in in life, what where your place is, and that and my uh, my memories of of 
of being certainly a um, a young teenager was was struggling, really struggling to find that place, you know, where where I really fitted in. And and for from since before I could remember, I always dreamed of being a Royal Marine. That's I didn't want to be. I didn't want the career. I wasn't really interested in soldiering. It. I didn't like uniforms. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't. Um, I didn't see it as a as a career. Um, for me, I dreamed of being a brave person, someone who could stand up and protect their mum. I guess. And um, when I was thirteen, you know, when you're at thirteen, you take your options. And uh, at my school, they had, uh, which was an awful, awful school, but they had a, a like a careers um, fair. Is probably overegging it uh, a bit, um, but they had the free armed uh, services there. They also had a Royal Marine there, and I think they had someone from Falls. So I grew up in Dagenham, and was your options really? What's a Falls or nothing? And uh, I went up to the Marine. Uh, the Royal Marines and said, I want to join the Marines. And I remember him asking me, he said, um, this is quite a strong memory etched in my in my brain. Um, he said, uh, are you captain of the football team? I said, no. He says, you're in the football team? I said, no. <laughs> then he asked about the rugby team. I said, we haven't got a, uh, we haven't got a rugby team. And um, he said, you're, you're not really what we're looking for. And so, really, my... Um, any thought of being a Royal Marine or joining the Marines as a serious vocation kind of evaporated there and then, but I never liked the dream. I still dreamed of it. Um, and I think that's, uh, that if anything is, has been the um, defining thing about me is that I, I've, I've always dreamed. I let, I'm quite good at letting me mind wander and, go off and oh I wonder, imagine if this happened and imagine if that happened and where I used to take solace in um drifting away I, I got quite good at it and um I suppose I'm quite good at dreaming so the saying yes to things isn't is really uh it, I wouldn't say that's um oh no I just you, when your life changes this is something that I learned when I lost my leg, really um, underlined it, I suppose. You kind of, we attach meaning to things. Like the universe don't care. The universe don't care less about me or my leg. And we, I try, try to make, uh, you know, make some kind of meaning out of it, whether it was good or bad, we attach that meaning to it. And actually, it's just a thing that happens. But when a big thing happens, when there's a big change, there's always opportunities. When your life, you know, goes in a completely different direction, there's always opportunities that come up. And if you can kind of detach yourself a little bit from um, seeing things you know, same, something like losing your leg, if you can detach yourself away from just looking at it purely as a negative thing, um, then I think you're more able to see the uh, the opportunities when they arise. And I was lucky in that I, when I did lose my leg, I thought to stay alive. So when I woke up the next day, I, you know, my leg had gone, but I didn't really care because I was... I was alive. I was there. And that's the only thing that mattered. So I think that mindset enabled me from the very start to kind of see opportunity rather than just see the negative in losing my leg. So that, that's perfect. I read one of the quotes and you said, when you woke up, I was physically weak, but mentally nothing had changed. Oh, that was today, wasn't it? I wrote that today. Yeah. Was that today? I was I was I was yeah. just skimming through your, your sort of website, did some research, and I just thought that wow. And I, I wanted to get a bit more detail. You've done better than that. But... I'm, I'm really uncomfortable um doing the inspirational stuff. Really, really uncomfortable doing it. Um and I'm kind of getting bullied into doing that. Uh really to get speech about the way my life has kind of turned out is I, is I do dar things and 
I get paid to talk corporate at corporate events <laughs> about the dark things, and I'm comfortable in telling a story. Isn't that any any boy's dream, by the way, just to do daft things and then get paid to tell people about that? Yeah, cool. it's brilliant. I, 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 <laughs> no careers advisor ever ever laid that out as an option. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of just sort of fell into doing it. But whilst I was um, when I was working on the uh, triathlon, so everything I've done, um, I don't take anything out of the charity. So I don't get paid. I don't take a wage. Um, I don't compensate myself for loss of earnings, but I tend, I'm learning as I'm going along. So mm. one thing that I've learned from the triathlon is that I can't neglect the um, the actual earning money side of my life, which I did. I worked full time on the triathlon for nearly eighteen months, which put speaking to um, uh, took a back seat. And um, the way I get work is people recommend me if they see me or, you know, someone says uh, something, you know, two people might be talking and saying, oh, I've got to organise a conference. So, oh, I saw, you know, and that's how yeah. I recommended and that's how I get work when um, that's kind of died away because I haven't done any work. So the uh, that that quote it's true i do believe it but i haven't quite made peace with um being an inspirational person because <laughs> i don't it's yeah i get uh, a lot of people ask if i want to inspire people to you know do things do challenges especially disabled people and i don't you know, you live your life. If your thing is sitting on your sofa and playing games and, and ordering pizza, you live your good life. I ain't going to tell you how to live your life. That's not what I do. It's, um, for me, the my mission in life is to prove no one should be defined by disability. But how they choose to live their life is completely up to them. But that's, like, with, this, with talking... I'm comfortable in telling a story. If people find that inspiring, that's that's their lookout. That's nothing to do with me. But actually telling people, you know, um, you know, how to live their life or, you know, you've got to be more positive, you know, that's really not me. <laughs> I really struggle with it. No, do you know what I guess though that the 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 sheer point of you doing activities um is is actually the inspirational piece because um I you're, you're saying that the, the triathlon. No, um, it's probably worth explaining to everybody what you mean by the triathlon that you did, and and to, and this by any stretch of the imagination is 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 awe inspiring. Um, well, I, I probably the best way of describing it is where I got the idea from, and this is absolutely genuine. When I first woke up in hospital, I was as high as a kite on drugs as you can imagine, which probably explains the full process. Right. But the first thing I thought was I'd done a couple of, I kind of fell into um, doing events um, for a charity, and that was a complete, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That I wasn't, it's not, was never anything on my radar. I personally, I said about me being bang average physically. I um, actually, the thought of um, doing something impressive enough to ask people to give you money was uh, was something that was never on my radar. You know, I never thought of myself as being like that. But I, um, uh, I, I suppose I rescued a puppy in Afghanistan accidentally didn't intend to it was just there and it was just a pure natural human instinct to you mm. know it, it was dying where it was and the um the cousin put me in touch with a charity called now's ad dogs it was on the news during um uh, the withdrawal from kabul pen farthing uh, runs it and basically they bring back dogs for all the guys that were serving in iraq and afghanistan and uh, I brought the dog back, and he and he said, "Look, can you do a bit of fundraising for us?" And that's where it all started. I'd done a a cycling sportive, but I got the bug. I really enjoyed it. And then six months before I lost my leg, I'd done a 
a double marathon across Dartmoor to raise money for a young Marine who had broken his neck. And they um, was looking to get a robotic exoskeleton to help him. So when I woke up in hospital, I'd already had that, you know, without a leg, I'd already had that well-trodden path. So it was quite... Um, it was quite a normal thought process to to challenge myself and say, right, what can I, what can I do? And I I, I thought about doing a marathon. Thought, right, I'm going to challenge myself to do a marathon within a year of uh, losing my leg. And um, then I thought, well, what about the three peaks? You know. And then I thought about cycling. I thought, you know, I should be able to cycle. That would be easier. And like, and then obviously, when you think about cycling, you think the lands end and jodder grows. And then I thought about swimming, and I thought, you know, and, and the biggest, I you know, challenge in in Britain swimming wise is is the Channel, isn't it? So and then it just the light bulb went off on my head and went, well, that's a triathlon. So swim the Channel, cycle lands end at jodder grows, and do the three peaks. And I had the idea within first or second day. After losing my leg, um, I, I actually set myself a target of raising ten thousand pounds for the Royal Marines charity in my first year, and um, I suppose we'll come on to to rowing. Uh, sort of rowing got in the way, um, but after me um, my solo row, I started thinking about the triathlon again, and um, I I got round to attempting it. Um, last year, so summer last year. So I just have to say the thought process that goes a marathon, nah, that's, that's not enough. Let's, let's do something else. <laughs> I'd already done a marathon. I, I, I ran a marathon in um, uh, for the One Wings Charity in the World British Legion um, on Christmas Eve, and I ran it from Oakhampton Camp over Dartmoor to my local pub. Uh, which is just around the corner. And it just happens to be bang on 26 miles all over uh, Dartmoor. And it snowed the night before. And I was actually running through in places. It was like knee deep snow. And the first half um, from Oakhampton to Postbridge in the middle of the moor, the training was taking me about two, two and a half hours. And uh, on the actual day, it took me seven hours. And then um, when... Um, it came to light that the, the young lad, he, he lived in the village called Dom, Dom Lovett, uh, who broke his neck. And uh, they was looking to get him um, a robotic exoskeleton, which would give him a little bit more dexterity with his hands and a bit more movement. Mm. And that, uh, that would enable him to then go to university. Uh, so uh, there's a group in the village um, where I live that, of former servicemen. We all got together. Says, right, what we're going to do? Well, when they say what we're going to do, they meant what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd already run a marathon, so I couldn't do a marathon. So I'd already done it, um, and then I, you know, I I couldn't do like two marathons on consecutive days because Eddie Izzard had already done about 26 in 26 days. So I thought there's nothing else for it is to do a double marathon. So I ran from the pub to Oakhampton, turned around and run back. So actually when when it, you know, the thought of doing a marathon, it was really, well, I've already done that, haven't I? So I need to do something else. <laughs> well, I bet you were gasping for a beer by the time you got back to the pub. <laughs> I was, yeah. <laughs> they were open, weren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, Last orders, yeah. <laughs> it was a... Uh, I ran into it was the village fair that day on the double marathon. I ran in, and uh, and basically I didn't know this was going to happen, but the whole village came out and clapped me in, and it, it was amazing. We raised um, just over twenty thousand um, pounds, oh, nice. and then the Royal Marines charity stepped in with seventy thousand pounds. So I think the whole robotic exoskeleton uh, cost ninety thousand. I think I've got those figures right. We definitely raised just over twenty thousand. And Dom went off and trained at uni as a counsellor. So he's now, they call it paying it on, doesn't it? You know, we we as a group, like, raised the money. And, and that good deed then has enabled someone else to continue that good work and support, 
you know, people who, who are having a bit of difficulty. And yeah, I, I think it's quite a beautiful thing, actually. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You said earlier about you feel uncomfortable about the inspirational stuff. It's your actions which are inspirational. It's it's mind blowing. Honestly, it's your well, first. Well, I, I'm, as you said earlier about I'm living everybody's dream, and it's only circumstance which has allowed me to do this. Anyone would want to do it, um, and I kind of through, through fluke and circumstance being given the chance to live that life. So, you know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm so lucky to be able to do it. I was going to be stupid. I, I think I already know the answer to my own question, so I don't know to ask it or not. But I was going to say, given what you've done, I mean, like when you're in the Marines, you loved it, right? You, you're there 24 plus years. Yeah. And then you had the accident. Would you change anything? And I think I think I know your answer is going to be no. But <laughs> I'd go back in an instant and have my leg. Really? Yeah. It's but I might as well. You know, do you ever get upset about the fact that you can't fly, or that you haven't got a lightsaber? Yeah. Well, not... Yes. Yes to both instantly. Uh, no, x-ray vision x-ray vision as well no but do you do you sit there and get depressed about that well no. i can't change yeah the past, so i may as well get the ump about not having a lightsaber so i don't think about it a lot yeah. but yeah if if there was some kind of magic pill that i could take and it would take me back to that moment oh that's that see that's a different question I'm quite capable of living life with one leg. I wouldn't be happy living life as someone who doesn't stop at an accident. So I definitely would still stop. Yeah. Know what would happen. Um, but if if the whole circumstance had changed, um, then yeah, I'd, I'd have my leg back in an instant. I I loved my job and I loved that direction my life was going in, I was happy with. Yeah, it's, that, that surprised me, that answer. It, it really did. But I'm like, because what, what, what you've done on the back of it, you know, it's, do you, but even the whole thing, when you talked, do you mind me talking about it, by the way? I should, no, but, no, 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 I've got, I'm completely, well, about the accident. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that you yeah, talked no, through how to save your life, it, that's, how did your mind do that, you know, to, well, to keep calm? I remember I've done three tours of Afghanistan where losing your leg was... I, I Every time you'd walk out the gate and go on patrol, you kind of had to make peace with the fact that this might happen and then put it to the back of your head and forget about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to function. Mm. And I didn't realise, I, I think I still had that resource within me. So when my leg... When I looked at my leg and went, oh, my leg's gone. <laughs> but I, I knew instantly the next thought was, right, that ain't important. The important thing is you've got to stop the bleed. Because that was, I'd lived that life for nearly 18 months. Was there training that kicked in? And no, I, I don't think it was, really. People, A lot of people uh, see an irony in, in me doing tours of Iraq and three tours of Afghanistan. Yeah. And coming through that unscathed, but losing my leg um, in Surrey on the M3. Uh, but I don't, it, it's not irony. There's no irony there. It's life happened to me. It was just life. But because I'd done Afghan, I reacted so quickly. If I hadn't have done that Afghan, even knowing, in fact, knowing how to save my life, I still wouldn't have reacted as quickly. And that's backed up by the policeman who attended the scene, um, he, we became friends, actually. We ended up going to a couple of festivals together. Um, he said that he'd attended loads and lo it was like a, a, a traffic, he was a traffic policeman, right? So he, he was like a normal copper, but his speciality was uh, vehicles. Mm. And he attended like dozens and dozens of similar accidents where people have died 
but they knew what to do. And it is always, so the actual knowing what to do and having the training doesn't, it's living that life. So I'm lucky, actually. So when people say, oh, about, uh, when I say sorry, I don't see the irony in it. I just see that life happened to me. But luckily, I'd done um, Afghan. And because I'd done Afghan, I had that resource within me to draw upon. And that's what saved me life. So I love I love the bit about saying yes to dreams. I mean, my, my dad was in the army, actually. And uh, he, he came from the west of Scotland. And um, he one of the reasons he um, joined the army, because there was just absolutely nothing around in the area. And uh, and he went through from there. But I, I guess I was, I was going to touch on the training bit and, and things through there. Do you think that's given you sort of the structure and the piece about having army life or, or do you think because of your dreaming? I was a Royal Marine. Sorry to uh, correct you. <laughs> sorry. Very different from the army. Um, it's dreaming got me to the, to the start line of the Marines. Eventually um, I tried at 18, went to the careers office and chief petty officer Smith name blazoned on my memory. Um, said those exact same words to me as a as a recruiting sergeant when I was 13, you're not what we're looking for. Um, but I, I thought I'd, I'd give it one last go uh, when I was 21. And, and to join the Marines, you can't just go to the careers office and just say, oh, I'm signed here and then you're in. You have to pass. Well, the first thing they do is they get you to pull-ups as soon as you walk in the door. And there's a set amount that you've got to do, um, otherwise that it ends there. Um, and then you have to go and pass what was called the potential uh, recruits course, PRC. And I went and done that and I scraped all of the physical tests. Like I actually got called back into the office at the end after I was told I was passed. And the um, uh, the chief instructor was a sergeant major of the course. He, uh, he told me that, you know, I just passed, and I know what I had anyway, so I know what the pass mark was on the on the, all the physical tests, and I knew that I, I just passed each one of them. But he um, he basically said, look, you need to improve this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. But what had got me through was I, I didn't give in. I kept going and going and going and going and going, and he could see that. So dreaming got me to the start line of training. And I think what training has given me, Royal Marines training is, um, it's not how people would perceive military training. For instance, the, the mantra throughout everything is, do this, if you don't want to, don't do it. There's the door. We, like every morning, my, I'll swear, you, know, you can edit it out. But a corporal took me through training every morning, every morning. You fuckers are surplus to requirements. I do not need you. Sergeant McCarthy does not need you. The Royal Marines do not need you. You fuckers are surplus to requirements every morning. <laughs> and it was it was the motivation, really, because it's all self-motivation. So... No amount of screaming. I've never been woken up in my entire career in the Marines by someone coming, get up, right, get up and scrub. We were told what time to fall in and then we'd have to work to get everything, you know, in training, everything had to be immaculate in the morning and we'd be up at five to fall in at eight, you know, with everything immaculate, you know, floors. But no one came and woke us up. We were expected to do that ourselves. It's all self-motivation. So I learned self-motivation in the Marines without people, you know, doing things without being shouted at, and doing things yourself. And and, and the other thing is, is um, uh, the commando um, mindset, which is first to understand uh, first to, oh, I can't remember it off, um, offhand, but it's basically first to first be the first to understand, the first to improvise and overcome, and the first to adapt and the first to overcome. And that, since I've lost my leg, is how I've lived. It's like you, you come up against something like swimming, for instance, you think, right, I can't 
get in and out of pool. So how am I going to do that? Do I do it on my bum? You, you come across something that you can't do how you used to do it, but it's definitely that commando mindset has given me the, okay, I can't do it that way, but what way can I do it? So that definitely came from uh, the Marines. It's fascinating stuff. I'm t- sorry, I'm, I'm just sitting here just <laughs> listening. It's absolutely mind-blowing stuff. But when you got told as a 13-year-old, we're not, you're, you're not what we want, do you think that in the back of your mind was then tricking along and saying, I'm going to prove you wrong? And no, you got told no, no, I, no, I just took it for granted. If he didn't know what was required, then no one did. Uh, but if, if I could go back and talk to myself then... I would have probably said, yeah, he might know what's required to be a Marine, but he doesn't know you. You don't know what you're capable of at this point. So how does he know what you're capable of, you know? Um, but, yeah, that that was – I I was rubbish at everything. Um, you name it, I've been rubbish at it. Let's play a cool game. Name something, anything. I've, I bet you I've either tried it and fucked it up. From, at least you give it a go. Yeah, from falconry, I had a kestrel, it flew away, obviously. <laughs> um, to, to, I don't know, I can't see. I was like, rubbish at everything. <laughs> so, uh, that's what, you know, it was quite difficult as a as a as a young teenager. It's quite it's quite hard not being good at anything. Yeah. How, how did it sorry, how did you get into falconry? Oh, I just <laughs> Just always loved nature. There was a there was a in a street I grew up in. In it's called Ingleby Road in Dagenham, and there was um, a group of kids that were a bit older than me. They kind of took me under their wing. Um, that there was one guy called Tony Watson. He was seven years older than me. So when I was seven, he was fourteen, and he used to take me catching lizards and snakes over. There was a bit of waste ground. Um, mm with a stagnant pond in it and he used to catch newts and and I got a real love of nature through that, through Tony. I'm friends with him still, you know. That so that's where the falconry came from. I always loved like the only bird of prey you'd see in Dagnum would have been a kestrel. So I became a little bit obsessed with birds of prey, but especially kestrels, because that's all you saw. Yeah. So I, I then Started, you know, dreamed of, um, I dreamed of, of being a falconer. <laughs> I know, mad, isn't it? I got a kestrel and um, I was showing me mate the kestrel <laughs> and I tripped over and <laughs> let it go and it flew off. I never saw it again. No, didn't. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Let's go straight. Uh, oh, right. So, hold on. Right, so we've done this. You've done this minor little thing of uh, swimming the channel, uh, cycling from Land's End to John O'Grace. No, I didn't. I, I, um, I didn't get across the channel, and I didn't get. I got as far as um, Scarfield Pike, and me um, stumped. Cumbria, yeah, and we stumped. Well, the way I was going to do it was swim the channel, cycle. Um, to Snowden, go up and down Snowden, cycle to Scarfell Pike, up and down that, which is as far as I got, then cycle to John O'Groats and then finish with a marathon over Ben Nevis. Um, said no one's done it before. And if you do something that no one's ever done before, then there's quite a high, uh, there's a high chance that you won't do it either, which I didn't. Um, I didn't get across the channel. The, the weather was horrific, mm. and I'm quite bitter about that. I've been told by um, someone uh, I'd heard this before, but it's only when you sit down. So I blamed myself. So I, you know, did I train hard enough? Was I a good enough swimmer? Should I have been able to cope with those conditions? And it's not until you sit down with someone who is on the uh, is on the board of the Channel Swimming Association and said said that was not a Channel Swimming day. And in fact, I know that, but it's not until someone tells you that that you can kind of take it on board. In fact, I three other people tried to get across 
that day and I lasted an hour longer than anyone. Um, the other, but that's fine. You know, um, I now know how to do it because I, I tried it and failed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm waiting for the slots for 2025 to come available and I'm going to book a slot for the channel in 2025. And instead of cycling to um, Snowden, then Scarfield Pike, I'm just going to cycle up straight to John O'Groats and then do the free peak. So I'll finish, instead of finishing, I, I got obsessed with finishing at the Speenbridge Memorial, Commando Memorial. Mm, yeah. Um, and I thought that would be a good fitting place to finish. And that kind of, that's why I thought, like, do Snowden and Scarfield on the way and finish with a marathon. Um, but I've changed that because going, even cycling into Snowdonia and then cycling into the Lake District for Scarfell, you're adding um, hills that you don't have to, you, you can't cycle lads into John O'Groats and not go up and down a few hills. Mm. But by not keeping the amount of hills to a minimum, I I trashed my stump and it was bleeding at the back um, and I couldn't get my leg on. Uh, I, it was strapped up, but because it was so bad, it's it swelled up a bit, mm. which meant I couldn't get my leg on without taking all the strapping off. And once I taken the strapping off, it 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 was done. And then once you can't get your leg on, that's it. That's the end. There's nothing you can do about it. But I've I've learned um, valuable lessons. I've changed my prosthetics. So I've got a um, a different. Um, uh, leg that should be able to um, put up with a lot more. Um, my, you know, I should be able to do a lot more on it cycling wise without damaging my stump. Um, it's a lot more cut away, so it's it's rubbish for walking, but more adapted for cycling. Um, I'm staying away from as many hills as possible, and then just doing the free mountains as the three peaks challenge so basically go up and down one drive straight to the next one and then straight so i'll be finishing uh, um penny pass in snowdonia next to snowden um so I've, I've you know if you're doing something that no one's done before you have you, you can't those lessons you you can't know them without mucking it up without failing mm -hmm. it can I ask a question? How does it feel to be a multiple world record holder? Was was that the, the goal when you did the rowing to say, right, we're going to do it, we're going to smash it, or is it just to do it? Or now, the first row. So um, the first row, my goal was to just get a spot on the boat, and then when I got that, um, it was just get across. And I didn't know that we'd got a Guinness World Record. We got um, we got presented. Um, a Guinness World Record. They got someone from Guinness down, mm. um, and uh, that was a surprise. Um, the second one, which I've done solo, that was to something happened. I, I when I lost my leg, I or the person I was, I finally got to a point where um, I was a volunteer for special duties, not special forces. So I wasn't in the SAS or SBS. Need to make that clear but I was a volunteer for special duties, and which is a really specialised job. And out of my course, out of um, roughly about 120 people, three of us eventually got the qualification. So it's quite a cheeky course. Um, I was, I finally felt that, you know, I'd led men in war, and I, I finally felt that I was someone I could be proud of. And then when I lost my leg, um, I thought that the person I was the night before, that person who was very comfortable in my own physicality, I thought that person had gone forever. I was now disabled and I'd have to redefine myself, but within the parameters of disability. And rowing the first time, it was literally, I was going across two thirds of the way across. And it was a real, it wasn't a slow dawning, it was a sudden realisation that I was still the same person. And that's where that not defined by disability, the importance 
behind the message of proving that no one should be defined by disability. So I thought I had to define myself by my disability. And then I started thinking about, you know, no one else has ever spoken about it in terms of something they can't do. No one ever says, do you know Dave? Say Dave who? Say Dave who's never going to win the 400 metre hurdles. No one else is described in those terms. But when you're disabled, that disability does tend to define you. Not always, but it does tend to. And I thought that's so unfair. Everyone, able-bodied or disabled, has the right to have something positive define them. So that's where um, the impetus for and the idea behind the second row is I saw that there was a record um, a guy called Steinhoff, a Norwegian, he rode from Portugal to KN in South America in 2002. He's the third person in history to do it, but he'd done it the fastest. So he, he had the record and it was um, uh, 96 days, 12 hours and 45 minutes. And I thought I could beat that record. And if I beat an able record as a disabled person in something as physically demanding as rowing across an ocean solo, then that would prove that no one should be defined by disability. So the first record was the world's first all amputee crew of four to row any ocean. That was a surprise. The um, uh, the second uh, set of records that I set out to to beat them. So I set out to get that record. I actually, I think Guinness were doing a, a bog off offer, offer on record. <laughs> I knew I'd be the first physically disabled person to row from mainland Europe to mainland South America. I was the fourth person in history. So I knew I was going to get the first disabled person. And I was going for the fastest. So the, the speed record. Um, but they also gave me the um, longest ocean road by a physically disabled person. I wasn't expecting that one, so I got three. Uh, so that's where the four came from and, and the reasoning behind them. He didn't just beat them, though. He smashed it, didn't he? He absolutely smashed the, the world record right at speed. Yeah, I, I, I beat the... Um, I'd done it in 60 days, 16 hours and six minutes, so I beat the able-bodied record by 36 days. That's just insane. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, I was very lucky. It was. It was oh well, come on, it's not yeah, like beyond beyond what I thought would be possible. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna uh, ask about the zero gravity stuff as well, and um, coming through. But I, I, I just love that bit that no one, everyone has the right to have something positive as a description. And I think if that whole thing, because when I was reading about the fact you woke up and and, and everything else, it was this just. It is just inspiring by your actions, Lee. Um, it's it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's, I take my hat off to you, honestly. It's just absolutely mad. Oh, it's just opportunity, really, isn't it? I got an email asking for volunteers to row an ocean. Um, actually, we'll rewind. In 2004, I've just finished a season with the commando display team it's the best thing i'd ever done um it was basically it was as close to being a rock star as i'll ever be it was like we was going from hotel to hotel to hotel partying all the time putting on the occasional oh no i'm combat display or hospital rescue out by helicopter have sailing out it was amazing but i'd done the end of season um party and there's a bar in paul in Dorset called the uh, the Blue Boy. It's got like a cellar bar and we had our um, uh, party in there. And I went to see uh, the, um, he was a former Royal Marine who ran the bar and he had this picture of a weird boat on his wall. And I was asking, you know, we finished talking about you know, um, hiring it and everything. And, and I said, what, what's that there? And he said, oh, that's my ocean rowing boat. I went, Say what? He said, yeah, I, was, I tried to row across the Atlantic, me and another guy, um, and we ended up having to get rescued. And I, I was just so astonished that that was a thing, that you could row. And, and the thought of, like, 
two tiny humans pitting themselves against the might of the Atlantic Ocean just seemed so bonkers. Um, and that was it. That was all I saw or heard or first I'd heard and the last I'd heard of ocean rowing right up until um, you got your my first day I was in the Headley Court in the bed when I first went to Headley Court after I lost my leg. In the bed opposite me um, was a uh, a guy with a big beard with no legs, and asked, you know, I asked him, I goes, "What, what's with the beard?" And he said, oh, "I've just come back from around the Atlantic," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and that was Cal Royce who ended up skippering the first row that I did, um, and so when I got that email asking for volunteers to put together the world's first all-amputee crew, I immediately jumped it and, and, and made that right. My, I just finished my first year as an amputee and raised £12,000. And I was just thinking, right, I need a focus, I need a goal, I need something to work towards. And that came along at the right time. And then after I'd done it, um, the night we got into Antigua, I, uh, I actually said to my wife, I'm thinking about doing it solo. And... I was still in the Marines. I thought I'd still, um, they'd still pay me for about a year, 18 months before I'd get medically discharged. Kind of come to the end of me rehabilitation. So I was as good as I was going to get. So there was an opportunity to work on it full time um, and not worry about a wage. And I'd just done it. And I thought these opportunities don't come along. And if I don't take the opportunity now, mm. then I might never get the chance to do anything like this again. So it's literally just opportunity. Yeah. I mean, too short, right? You got to grab it, boy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true, and and so many. It's nothing. It genuinely isn't anything. The most unusual thing about me is what's happened to me. It is unusual. I get it, but. That's the only thing. I'm the same as anybody else, but I just got, through circumstance, these opportunities. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. So, well, um, so I touched on, we had um, a previous guest, um, a lady called Rachel Mountain, and we asked her to ask a question for our next guest. She didn't know who we were, but she goes, where do you see yourself when you retire? If you ever will. <laughs> yeah, retiring um, kind of implies that I've got a normal job, hasn't it? <laughs> I've managed to avoid. That's what I say to people, and I say that half jokingly, but I mean it. I say, "Oh, you're why are you doing this? Why are you putting?" It's like, well, it's either do that or get a proper job, and I'm not cut out for. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. So yeah, I don't know. What, um, uh, I, I suppose the answer, excuse me, to give the the question a fair uh, a fair going is what do I do when I can't? I'm too old to do the physical stuff. I haven't got a clue. I don't know. Will it involve falcons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Wildlife photography, maybe. I don't know. So what question would you like to ask them our next guest? Oh, oh, right. You really put me on the spot. I said I'd think of one and I couldn't. Um, when you were young, did you envisage yourself doing what you're doing now? Are you living your your childhood dream? And if not, what was that dream? Good question. Yeah. Great question. Uh, <laughs> How do you answer your own question? Um, yeah, I am living that dream. I am. I, 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 my dream was to be a Royal Marine. And then that was my childhood dream. And then when I became a Marine, when you pass out of training, it's incredible. But then you go to a unit and you realise, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the shittest person here. <laughs> <laughs> So then your dream becomes being an average Royal Marine. 
but you know, I dream. I never contemplated doing the things that I'd done in my career as a Marine. And then, which goes back to when you asked me about would I, I bet I wouldn't change anything. Um, well, I would because I, I loved what I was doing. Mm. And it, that was that was living my childhood dream beyond mm. what I thought was possible. And obviously, once I'd come to terms with the fact that I'm never going to have a, a, a lightsaber, not in my lifetime anyway. <laughs> I think some, we'll get somebody to sort that one out. I think there's a, a phone block a good uh, one there. I've kind of come to terms. I remember watching Star Wars. I was seven when it came out. I went to the cinema to watch it when I was a kid. I came out of there and I just thought, when I'm older, when I'm like an adult, they're bound to have invented lightsabers by then, and I would just love one. It's never happened. <laughs> oh, there's time yet. I still want one of those hoverboards. So, <laughs> back to the future coming over. That was a cute thing. I think I've seen as well. Your daughter just running in and giving you a hug. <laughs> oh, thank you. She's um, probably wants dinner or something. So, <laughs> um, I've just been up walking. My daughter. Um, bit older now uh, she's a nurse but we went for a walk on the moor today and she bought me lunch <laughs> nice yeah, so those moments never stop <laughs> no and I'll always cherish them they're good it's coming through well um, wow thank you um, yeah. that was... honestly that was absolutely amazing I can't thank you enough for that oh thanks thanks for inviting me along no, I'd have it off. No, thank you for thank you for one reading our email and two coming on. It's absolutely I know you were saying earlier you don't see it, but it is completely inspirational. It really yeah. is. It's absolutely brilliant, brilliant stuff. Yeah, it's very kind of you to say. We really hope you enjoyed that chat with Lee. Again, simply amazing what he's achieved. His message that everyone has a right to have something positive to find you is very important. It's a key takeaway for himself. Again, thank you for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe and give comments as it really does help us. And until then, see you next time. Thank you.